scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Philippians in chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. It's Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal to God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the fourth of a bondservant, and coming in the likeliness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Well, I'm proud to stand before you today and be able to proclaim that I am an alumni of a school with a college football national championship. It does not matter that it was against the Colorado School of Mines. That doesn't matter. This morning, we're going to continue our study of church words, and we're going to uh, come to a word that has significance, particularly this time of year. I want to share with you something that one author has, has observed. He said that when we read the Old Testament, it almost seems like a play with human characters who act out their lives of small triumph and large tragedy on stage, while periodically calling to an unseen stage manager, saying, you don't know what it's like out here. To make his point, he appeals to Job. If you go over to Job chapter 10, verse 4 and 5, Job went so far as to ask God these questions. Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? Are your days as the days of man, or your years as a man's years? Do you realize the question Job is posing? He's asking God, do you know what it's like to be human? Do you know what it's like to inhabit flesh? Do you know what it's like to experience what we experience? And what's so very interesting is that when you arrive at the Gospels, no such accusations can be made. Because as that same author said, God found out what life is like in the confines of planet Earth. And the reason God discovered what it's like to be one of the actors in the play, so to speak, is because he became one. That's the basis of our next church word, which is the word incarnation. The term incarnation comes from a Latin word that literally means embodied in flesh or taking on flesh. And although the term incarnation does not appear in the Bible, it does convey, it does convey the concept that is communicated in several verses. Verses like John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son of the father. Full of grace and truth. Or Galatians chapter 4 verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time had come. God sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that they might receive adoption as sons. Or even 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. 
where Paul says this, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. You see, the term incarnation communicates a key biblical truth regarding God's relationship with us. Namely, that his plan of salvation necessitated that his son become human. And that was accomplished when a baby was born in Bethlehem a little more than 2,000 years ago. And as we all know, this, this important moment in history is often associated with this time of year because December 25th has been identified as the day of Jesus' birth since the 4th or 5th centuries A.D. You may notice, however, that there are no nativity scenes displayed inside or outside of our building. And you may wonder why we don't commemorate the birth of Jesus during this Christmas holiday season. Well, the truth is that, that we choose not to celebrate the Christmas holiday as Jesus' birthday for two reasons. One is because the Bible does not identify when Jesus was born, and the other is because God never instructed us to commemorate the day of Jesus' birth. So no mention is made in Scripture regarding the celebration of Jesus' birth on December 25th, so therefore it's not something we observe. It means that Christmas as a religious holiday is neither commanded or even expected by God. However, in our eagerness to be consistent with God's Word, we can become guilty of de-emphasizing Jesus during the holiday season in comparison to the rest of the year. When I was preaching in Florida, one of uh, the members told me of an encounter she had with one of the, her customers at her place of work. At that time, that particular December, we had a, an advertisement on our marquee, a message on our marquee uh, re referring to our upcoming holiday party. And the customer was aware that she was a member of our congregation. On one occasion when he saw her, he, he asked, Do y'all not believe in, in Jesus? Because he had equated our choice not to use the term Christmas with the popular practice of government institutions and retailers disassociating themselves from anything to do with Christ. You see, we cannot ignore the fact that many people will be thinking about our Lord and Savior this time of year. And it provides us with this wonderful opportunity to talk about Him and what He has done for us. So as the birth of Jesus is on people's minds, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I want us to consider the importance of Jesus taking on flesh. But to appreciate the incarnation. I'm not going to emphasize why he came, though that was my original intent. I came to realize, though, that the whole church word series is emphasizing why he came. He came to atone for our sins. He came to appease God's wrath and so on. Instead, what I want to do today is focus on how Jesus became flesh. What I mean is that I want us to understand what it took for Jesus to become incarnate. And no passage conveys what it took for Jesus to become flesh better than the one we just read and that we'll read one more time in Philippians chapter 2. 
Because there Paul tells us that although Jesus existed in the form of God, he did not regard, regard equality with God as they think to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What Paul is saying is that in order to be fully human, Jesus had to voluntarily divest himself of certain rights, privileges, and prerogatives of deity. Now, that that does not mean that Jesus gave up his divinity. It does not mean that he stopped being God. Instead, it means that he emptied himself of all those attributes that would have rendered his human experience less than human. As one preacher said, Jesus gave up whatever he needed to give up as deity so that he could experience humanity in its fullest form. And this morning we're going to explore those things that Jesus gave up. And the first privilege that Jesus gave up was the privilege of immortality. God is frequently described as immortal. In fact, Paul bookends his first letter to Timothy with descriptions of God's immortality. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17, Paul wrote to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And then if you skip ahead to the sixth chapter and you look at verses 15 and 16, Paul refers to God as the only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality. But what does immortality mean? Well, it's the opposite of mortality. It's the opposite of being mortal. And to be mortal is to be subject to death. So therefore, to be immortal is to not be subject to death. But there's another way to think of it. To be immortal also means to be subject to time restraints to beginnings and endings. And so to be immortal, to not be mortal, means to not be subject to time, to not be subject to beginnings and endings. Since God is immortal according to Scripture, He's not subject to death, and He's not subject to time. He has always been, and He will always be. That's why He's referred to in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 6, not only as the Alpha and Omega, but also the beginning and the end. And that's why on the fourth day of creation, he had to make celestial lights to separate the day from the night and to serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, according to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 14, because prior to creation, time didn't exist. So God is immortal. And that means that Jesus was immortal too. Jesus, who was with God and was God, according to John chapter 1 and verse 1, transcended time because he preceded it. And since all things were made through him, according to John chapter 1 and verse 3, Jesus created time. So he knew what existence apart from time constraints was. But then we're told in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1 that Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. 
And if you skip ahead to Mark chapter 15 and verse 37, we're told that Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Do you know what those two passages tell us? They tell us that the one who was the beginning and the end entered an existence in which he had a beginning and an end. And the one to whom a day was like a thousand years now had to experience a situation in which a day was only 24 hours. So when Jesus emptied himself, one of the divine privileges he gave up was the privilege of immortality. He became mortal. He became subject to death. He became subject to time. Jesus gave up the privilege of immortality. And Jesus gave up the privilege of omnipresence. God is also described as being omnipresent in Scripture. That means that He is everywhere. He is all present. David described God's omnipresent perfectly in Psalm chapter 139, verses 7 through 10, where he wrote these words. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. That means that Jesus, who we've already noted was with God and was God, that means he transcended space because he, he was omnipresent. But then we're told in John chapter 1 and verse 14 that Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. In so doing, he stopped being omnipresent and started being locatable. And so I want you to notice this passage in Matthew chapter 15 and verse 29. It says, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. Now, that's not an extraordinary verse. It, it doesn't have any deep theological significance. It's not going to make our list of memory verses. In fact, if you're just reading through the Gospel of Matthew, this particular verse is not going to stand out to you for any significant reason. But this verse tells us that Jesus went that Jesus walked, that Jesus sat down. And all of those physical actions remind us that Jesus inhabited a physical body, a body that limited his movements in space. I like the way one preacher summarized this aspect of Jesus' divulged privilege. He said that if Jesus was in Bethlehem, he couldn't be in Nazareth. And if Jesus was in Galilee, he couldn't be in Jerusalem. He was confined to wherever his body was located. He was no longer omnipresent. He was just present. And that means that when Jesus entered the world as a baby, for the first and only time in all eternity, deity was to some degree in one place at one time. He gave up the privilege of omnipresence. And he also gave up the privilege of omnipotence. Omnipotence means all-powerful. 
When we say that God is omnipotent, ultimately what we're saying is that he has unlimited power and is therefore able to do anything that is in keeping with his nature. It is this trait of God that is being referenced when Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 26 that all things are possible with God. Now, when I say that Jesus gave up the privilege of omnipotence, you may be sitting there thinking, but wait, he could perform miracles. He could walk on water. He could turn water to wine. He could raise the dead. He could do all these things. Aren't those indicators of his omnipotence? Well, it's true that Jesus could perform miracles. It's true that he did many mighty works. But when we're talking about Jesus giving up the privilege of omnipotence, what we're referring to is the fact that while on earth, he operated with limitations. There were limitations to what Jesus could and could not do. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 says that Jesus partook of the same things as those who share in flesh and blood. In other words, he experienced life in a human body, and the human body has limitations. You see, Jesus experienced the physical limitation of hunger. Early in his ministry, we read about his 40-day retreat in the wilderness during which he ate nothing, and as a result was hungry, according to Luke chapter 4 and verse 2. Then the day after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Mark chapter 11 and verse 12 tells us that he was hungry, so he approached a fig tree to obtain something to eat, only to find out that its fruit was not in season. Jesus also experienced the physical limitation of fatigue. According to Mark chapter 4 and verse 38, when the storm on the Sea of Galilee arose, Jesus was in the stern of the boat, asleep on a cushion. And in John chapter 4 and verse 6, we're told that he sat down next to a well in Samaria to rest because he was tired from his journey. And Jesus experienced the physical limitation of thirst. As Jesus rested by that well in Samaria, he asked a woman to give him a drink in John chapter 4 verse 7. And as he hung on the cross, John chapter 19 verse 28 tells us that he said, I thirst And as a result, the soldiers gave him a sponge full of sour wine to drink. Jesus got hungry. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus got tired. Jesus was exposed to the same physical limitations that you and I experience every day. That just means he knows what it's like. That just means that he gave up a privilege that only God has, a privilege of being limitless. So when Jesus emptied himself, he gave up omnipotence so that he could share in the experience of those who are made up of flesh and blood. He did not hold on to something that would prevent him from experiencing life just like you and me. So he gave up the privilege of omnipotence. And he gave up the privilege of untemptability. Now, I made this word up. If you couldn't tell, I made this word up. Untemptability is the term I'm using to describe what James says about God in James chapter 1 and verse 13. James said, God cannot be tempted with evil. And since Jesus and the Father are one, according to John chapter 10 and verse 30, 
then by default, Jesus cannot be tempted with evil, at least not in his divine state. That's why the story of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is so powerful. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, and Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 13, we're given the account of Jesus' temptation. We know that he was tempted to turn stones to bread, to jump from the peak of the temple and be rescued by angels, and to bow down to Satan in order to acquire the kingdoms of the world. Do you ever reflect on those temptations and wonder how they relate to you? How could those three temptations mean that Jesus has been tempted in every way like us. Because though some of you have been tempted to jump out of airplanes, I've never been tempted to fall free like that. I've never been tempted to turn stones into delicious bread from Carabas, as we discussed several weeks ago. I've never been tempted with those same things. So how does Jesus know what it's like to be tempted like me? Now, Scripture alludes to this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17, where it categorizes all sin into three areas, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And you've probably heard scholars connect these categories to the three temptations of Jesus. The temptation to turn stones into bread was how Jesus was tempted by the desires of the flesh. The temptation to bow down to Satan in order to receive the kingdoms of the world that he was being shown was how he was tempted by the desires of the eyes. And that temptation to risk his life by jumping off the temple in order to be rescued by angels was how he was tempted with the pride of life. But maybe there's more to this series of temptations than we often recognize. Maybe Satan was challenging Jesus at his weakest point. His humanity. Maybe Satan was trying to interrupt Jesus' human experience by attempting him to use and access his divine powers. Maybe Satan was testing Jesus to discover if he was truly 100% human. Maybe in these three temptations, Satan was trying to get Jesus, prod Jesus, to usurp his humanity with his deity. Because if he did that, then Jesus would never be able to claim that he knows what it's like to be us because we don't have access to that power. Maybe the God who cannot be tempted was tempted to return to that status in those 40 days in the wilderness. We need to appreciate the fact that when Jesus emptied himself, one of the privileges he gave up was the privilege of not being tempted. The privilege 
of protection from temptation ultimately. The privilege of untemptability. And that leads us to the last thing I want to mention that Jesus gave up. He gave up the privilege of sinlessness. Now, before you grab your pitchforks and torches and storm the stage to run me out of town, let me explain what I mean. Scripture clearly teaches that Jesus never sinned. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 clearly states that Jesus experienced this life without sin. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, we're told that, that he committed no sin. And in Hebrews chapter 9, and verse 14, we're told that he offered himself without blemish to God. So quite obviously, Scripture teaches that Jesus never committed sin. But when I say that Jesus gave up the privilege of sinlessness, I'm not claiming that Jesus committed sin. Instead, I'm referring to the fact that he became sin. We've already looked at this verse in our study of these church words. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, where we're told that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In this passage, Paul is telling us that in order to fulfill God's mission, Jesus had to become sin. And that means that Jesus knows what it's like to endure the consequences of sin. Not because he sinned, but because as Peter declared in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And when Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree, he endured the ultimate consequence of sin. He endured separation from God. And that's evident when you go back to Matthew chapter 27. It's evident at Calvary when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As darkness was over all the land. See, if Jesus never left heaven, he would have never had to be wounded for our sins. But if Jesus never left heaven, we would still have to assume the eternal consequences of our sins. So in making that decision to empty himself, he not only emptied himself of immortality, of omnipresence, of omnipotence, and untouchability, but he ultimately emptied himself of sinlessness as he voluntarily accepted the punishment for sins he never committed so that we could receive righteousness we never deserved. And because Jesus emptied himself of those divine privileges, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says that we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. See, the whole point of the incarnation was for Jesus to experience life fully human. He set aside certain privileges that would have prevented him from becoming our sympathizing high priest. And that means we can be certain that he endured life just like us. And since he endured life like us, we can imitate him. But it means there's some things that have to be let go of. You know, in the book Where the Red Fern Grows, which is one of the first books I can remember reading the entirety of, 
The protagonist, Billy, wants to train his two new dogs to hunt raccoons. But in order to do so, he needs a raccoon hide. He needs something to train them with. So he goes to his grandfather for help, and his grandfather shows him how to make a trap that lures a coon into reaching for a bright, shiny object. The trap is basically a small hole inside of a log drilled downward are nails with their points sticking out into the hole. And the premise of the trap is that the raccoon will reach into the hole to grab the shiny object, but once he grabs the object, he won't be able to pull his closed fist out of the hole because the nails will pierce his hand. Of course, there's a fundamental flaw with the trap, a flaw that the raccoon doesn't understand. And that is that all the raccoon has to do to escape is to let go of the shiny object. And then with open hand, he can retract his paw. And Billy points this out to his grandfather, but his grandfather tells him that once a raccoon grabs onto something, it won't let go. The reason I bring up that story is because sometimes you have to let go of something in order for life to continue. Jesus had to let go of some of his divinity temporarily so that our life can continue. Eternal life was contingent on the fact that Jesus gave up some divine privileges, that Jesus emptied himself in order to be fully human. But in order for us to reap the benefits of his life and his death, there are things we have to give up too. This morning, the invitation is this. If there's something that you need to let go of so that you can have eternal life with Jesus Christ in heaven, then won't you be willing to let go of it today? If you need to deny yourself Take up your cross and follow Jesus. That's the invitation today because Jesus has already done the hard work. Jesus has already endured the consequences for the sins that you commit and I commit. If you have any need to respond to the invitation today, we invite you to come while together we